God, I've been meaning to tell you something. Uh, look, I've been rereading this again, and uh, so much good stuff in here, so much good stuff. Um, and I'm also always trying to kind of keep my ear out to what's happening out there. And, uh, well, you know, you know I work with youth. Of course, you know that. Um, and I'm always trying to listen to what they're saying. And they've got great insights. Uh, you know, they're always so uh, honest and self-aware and sensitive to others in the room. Uh, wh which gets me to my point. Um, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. But some of the stuff in here is just a bit too extreme. Now, now no one told me to say this. In fact, I'm, I'm pulling you aside because I don't want you or, or it to fail. But, you know, some of the stuff in here is such a downer. It's almost like a buzzkill to the good news. You know, like, like when you talk about abundance, that's great. Golden, you know, works across the board. But when you get into the part about self-denial suffering and pain and a cross it's just well I think it turns people off you know uh, it's such a downer and coming off of what we went through last year uh, and still are going through with a pandemic I think people kind of need a feel-good message you know so uh, I just don't want to see you know this fail you know and uh, I just think that maybe if we can tone down some of the stuff about the cross and and talk more about the abundance uh, you know I think that can work and, and I don't want to otherwise you know it might be the death of the church as we know it and anyway I just I just wanted to say this to you directly you know uh, just kind of get it off my chest so God what do you think so have you ever played the role of Satan now don't answer that too quickly Maybe you haven't spoken as directly with God about some feelings, but maybe you have with your family, your close friend, you know, to pull them aside and tell them something you think they really need to hear, even if maybe in hindsight you find that it's a little bit tone deaf. Like, well, when does it start anyway? Uh, I was thinking probably starts like most things start in puberty. And then it gets real in high school. And then we just never really get it out of our system. Imagine. Um, hey, Jack, listen. Man, you can be nice to that awkward kid, but you can't go around liking everything she posts. You know, and then when our friends are kind of making harmless jokes, you keep, like, defending her. It's just, you got to stop that, man. You know, if you keep doing that, they're going to be coming for you, too, and me. It's just, it's kind of killing your reputation. Emily, you have got to tone it down with this, all these social issues. I mean, we're teens. We have plenty of time to grow up and be serious. I mean, even your Zoom background is like a social cause. It's just, it's exhausting. And it's going to, like, ruin our chances to ever be thought of as cool, you know, or get those invites we want. Can you stop it for us? Hey, buddy, listen, your mom and I wanted to talk to you. We think it's great that you want to work at that camp this summer with those kids, but you know that's it's a baseball camp, right? And your coach has said it's really important that you're there. And, you know, he's told you if, you know, if you can commit to playing all year like you've done for so long, 
you know, you've got a real shot at playing in college. And son, you're just, we don't want to see you give up this dream, you know, when you're so close to making it happen. Uh, so would you reconsider? When we care about someone, we're sometimes too willing to tell them what we are pretty sure they need to hear. You know, there's a social cost to every decision we make that goes against the norm. And the honest friend, they'll speak that before it's too late. Most parents do too. They're not willing to see their kid, their own kid, bullied, isolated, rejected by their peers. They don't want their kids to seem a bit too strange. So what do we do? We, we pull them aside because we love them. Because the alternative is to see them humiliated and embarrassed and rejected by their friends or by our world. If we're really honest, maybe because we're a little embarrassed too, just by association. That had to be on Peter's mind. He loved Jesus. Before all the other disciples, Peter alone was the most confident at naming who Jesus was. Lord, Peter knew that Jesus was Messiah just a few verses before we get to this verses today. So how did he go from getting it all right to getting it all wrong and all so quickly? To answer that, I think we need to consider what it means to be satanic or to play the role of Satan with our words and our actions. Uh, biblically, how does Mark talk about Satan when he's writing this gospel of Jesus for the world? On four different occasions, Mark mentions the name Satan, and all of it builds up to this last reading, uh, where this is a dramatic rebuttal of Jesus to Peter. Now, the first time it's mentioned, it's when Jesus is baptized, and he goes out into the wilderness, and there he's tempted by the tempter, Satan. You know, he's surrounded by the wildness of beasts and the abiding presence of angels, but Satan's there too. And then he comes back, and he calls his 12 disciples and immediately they go with him to his hometown and it's there that he starts to get rejected by some of his own hometown folks by those who've watched him grow up you know uh, he starts speaking against the powers or saying some offensive things something that's causing a stir people aren't recognizing him anymore they want to talk common sense into him mark even talks about how the scribes come all the way from Jerusalem, and they find him, and he's casting out demons, and they say, he's a witch! That's right. Before it was made famous in Salem or by Monty Python, this line was used for Jesus. I mean, technically, it's he has Beelzebub, but it's pretty much the same thing. So, what does Jesus do? Well, in fitting fashion, he retorts, how can Satan cast out Satan? A Satan divided amongst himself can't stand. And then he says that whoever blasphemes against the work of the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. Now that is a harsh, bold thing to say when you've got certified scribes visiting from the big city and when you're surrounded by people who've watched you grow up, who've taught you the Bible, who may have even changed your diapers. As a result, Jesus' own family, including his dear mother Mary, come and they try to restrain him, to talk some sense into him, you know, to hold up a mirror so he can see what he sounds like, what he can so he can think about 
what this kind of offensive, provocative language is going to lead to, what it's going to cost him, what it's surely going to cost his family too. So that's the second reference to Satan. The third reference happens when Jesus is telling a parable of the sower and the seeds. He's got a large crowd gathered by the sea, and he explains the whole parable. And then afterwards, the 12 disciples and a few others come up to him, and they say, can you go over it just one more time, please? So Jesus turns to them. Do you really not understand the parable, this parable? Then how are you going to understand all the parables? Okay, the farmer scatters the word. Now, when the word is scattered on the path and people hear it, immediately Satan comes in and he snatches it up, steals the word that was planted in them. Now, when the word is scattered on rocky ground, well, immediately people receive it with joy, but they have no roots. So as soon as it starts to there's talk about persecution and trouble, they fall away immediately. They fall away. I imagine Jesus pointing directly at the 12 for this last line. Maybe he's just pointing directly at Peter. Already sensing his reluctance, you know, towards the idea of suffering or persecution. Towards this perceived weakness and the idea that Jesus and his mission could seemingly fail against the power systems of the day. The Greek word used here is scandalized. Um, so when they hear of the troubles and the persecution that is to come, they find it scandalous. Scandalous, like how Jesus' birth begins. Scandalous, like how Jesus' life will end, hanging on a criminal's cross. Scandalous, maybe one of the most accurate, honest words we have to talk about the love of God. I was a college student, and we were on a fall retreat with our Baptist campus ministry group, and I was in the praise band. Now, I couldn't play guitar yet, but I could play a mean shaker. So I was there. We were rehearsing the hymns and songs for the weekend. We were in a large space, and in the back of the room was our campus minister and his friend, who happened to be the retreat speaker. Now, in all honesty, I can't tell you exactly what year it was in college, the speaker's name, the retreat theme. But I remember this one poignant moment. We're rehearsing the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And don't ask me where I put the shaker in, but I know I found a place somewhere. So we're rehearsing the hymn, a complete with an added on chorus that uh, was a little popular then. And it took the somewhat somber tone and text of the hymn and made it a little lighter, a little more joyful, a little easier to sing out. So we were, we were singing that, rehearsing, and the speaker, who hadn't apparently had never heard that chorus, uh, came all the way from the back of the room, motioned for us to stop. Now, he wasn't completely hating it, but he wanted to make sure we weren't rushing over the text. We weren't rushing over the, the dissonance and the tension and the words that were so intentionally written in this 300-year-old hymn. Uh, specifically, he brought our attention to the third verse. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow, mingled 
down. Did air such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? Sorrow and love, love and sorrow together? Our tendency is to downplay the sorrow and to exaggerate or to amplify the love. But in this text, it's there mingled together. And even if you add on a simple feel-good chorus, which we still did, you can't turn away from what the hymn is saying. You can't turn away from our Messiah who's on a cross. Remember, God is crucified love. So, back to Mark's telling of the gospel and this final mentioning of Satan by none other, none other than Jesus to none other than his most outspoken disciple. Get behind me, Satan. What is it about Peter's words that remind Jesus of his dealings with Satan? It's instructive to notice how Jesus speaks of Satan in that last parable. In this instance, Satan is not the evil creature coming to give your kids nightmares or to lead your teens astray. Satan is not the lobbyist for even more assault rifles or the developer of a brand new, even more graphic, violent video game. Satan is not even an elected official or the founder of Facebook. No. In this parable, representation, Satan is not even scary. Satan is scared. Scared of what might happen if a certain seed is allowed to germinate, to grow, to flourish. It's laughable in perspective why something so small would frighten the ancient creature embodying all evil and terror in the world. What can one seed accomplish? How much disruption to a system of power could stem from an idea like this? I recall hearing Max sermons about the tenacity of the English ivy or the mustard seed. I recall growing up and seeing kudzu trying to take over the world uh, and every Saturday morning when we went to my stepdad's sawmill, it was clear to me, kudzu was winning. I recall hearing my parents and my grandparents sing and tell me about how Jesus loves me, how the Bible would tell me this again and again, and how that one idea changed my life forever. I recall the astonishingly simple truth that a full-grown oak tree lives inside this, inside this tiny seed, an acorn, cap, just trapped there, the dark casings of a thin wooden shell, is something grand waiting to emerge, to take root. So, is it fair to call Peter Satan? Like Jesus' family wanted to do, he just wanted to pull Jesus aside in love. You know, talk some common sense into him to help him see reason. Peter has no desire for Jesus to fail. He's willing to do whatever it takes. 
to increase Jesus' popularity, to advance his mission as he understands it, to extend his following and his influence. Plus, Peter just read that article about what 18 to 34-year-olds want, so he knows what to say and what to avoid saying if you want to reach the influencers. The polls are clear. Suffering, major turnoff. Even in Lent, self-denial and sacrifice are never trending in our culture. Remember, Peter knows who Jesus is. Before anyone else, Peter confesses with his own lips that Jesus is the Messiah. You are Lord. Peter knew that Jesus was the true Messiah. It's just that Peter didn't know what being a Messiah truly meant. You may know that God fully loves you. But do you know what God's love fully means? As eager as Peter is to turn Jesus aside and sweep away the seed of crucifixion, it's Jesus who has to turn him aside. It's Jesus who has to look at the other disciples and then remind Peter of his place in God's kingdom work, which is behind Jesus. To walk in the unpredictable and unyielding steps of his Savior, who is indeed the Messiah. Get behind me, Satan. You would snatch up the seed of cruciform love? Well, I will snatch up the seed of prideful discipleship. I will not have that taking root among the followers. No, no, no. You have to let this seed of crucified love stay on the ground. Give it time. Eventually, you will see what kind of beautiful and scandalous things will emerge. Does this mean God loves suffering? Loves our suffering? No. God does not seek suffering, and Jesus did not seek it. God does not want our pain or our guilt, so we have to be careful not to let those human feelings get entangled with the cross, but to live along the path of our Savior into the audacious dream of God's imagination, to seek God's reordering of the world, is to be at odds with the establishment, is to be doing something provocative to the systems of power, to take up a cross, your cross, your very own, is to be strange, unpopular, unyielding, and that will cause suffering in some shape or form. John the Baptist had already been beheaded when Jesus started speaking so openly about suffering, and the one coming after John was even greater. So what did they think the system would do to him? Jesus knew what was coming, where it would lead him. It would be the death of a populist understanding of Messiah. But for those who would follow, it would be the ultimate and pure emergence of God's love, crucified. Now just let that sit there. Imagine what might take root. <laughs>